Now from the Milken Institute, responding to COVID-19, conversations with Mike Milken. What we've done during COVID, in many ways, we've taken 10 years of technology adoption and crammed it into three months. I'm certain we're getting ready to have a slew of new ideas that you and I haven't thought of and are gonna be amazed by the people who do it. That's Bob Pittman. He's the chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia, which reaches nine out of 10 Americans every month through radio, live events, apps, and podcasts. Pittman has been on the cutting edge of media innovation for decades, having served as chairman or CEO of such diverse companies as MTV, AOL, Clear Channel, Six Flags Theme Parks, and Century 21 Real Estate. He spoke recently with Milken Institute and Faster Cures chairman, Mike Milken. Bob, thanks for joining me today. I'm delighted to be here. As the son of a Methodist minister from Jackson, Mississippi, and the son of an accountant lawyer from the San Fernando Valley. It's amazing on how our life has intertwined over the last 40 years as we've seen the development of the telecommunication industry, media as we know it today, and the important role that you've played. Talk a little bit about the journey and what is it like being a DJ at 15 in 1968, when I think back to 1968, I had just gotten married, I left Berkeley on my way to Wharton and Penn for graduate school, stopped in Chicago, and we were there during the Democratic Convention. I was prepared for that from my free speech days at Berkeley, and, and you're a DJ, and I don't know if it's correct, but I think you're getting paid less than $2 an hour $1.65, minimum wage. I always wanted to fly airplanes. And at age 15, you can solo at 16 and get your student license. I told my parents, I'm going to get my pilot's license. And they said, well, you better get a job. And I'm in a small town in Mississippi, Brookhaven, Mississippi. And I go looking for a job. I first tried the cool job in town because well, all the kids hung out at a men's clothing store, Jack Shop. They said, you're too young. I go to the high paying job in town, bagging groceries at the Piggly Wiggly, no jobs. And I walk in a little radio station and I asked the owner, Bill Jones, if he had any jobs. And he said, do you get in trouble? And I go, no, not really. Do you have good grades? I go, yeah, pretty good grades. He goes, come here. And he takes me in a little room. He has a real, real tape recorder. He turns it on. He rips some wire copy off at those time teletype machines, puts it in front of me and said, read it. And in a few minutes, he came and listened to it. said, I'll say, that's good enough. Go to New Orleans, get your third class radio telephone operator's license so you can run the transmitter and you got a job. That began my career in radio. And you talk about the free speech movement going on in the country and what was going on in Chicago. In Mississippi, it was all civil rights. When I started school in 1959, it was completely segregated society. Colored onlys, white only lines. And by the time I graduated from high school, our high school was about 50-50 white-black. So it all happened in my time in school and my dad, as you mentioned, a Methodist minister, very proud of what he did during that period of time, that he really led the integration of the Methodist church. He was on the right side of it. So for me, as I looked at 1968, 1969, 1970, it was really about this coming of age. And Mississippi was probably the extreme example of segregation. So that's the world I grew up in and probably shaped my worldview from a sense of right and wrong and even if it's unpopular, do the right thing and stick to your values. And whatever I've done in the world and business, 
I've always thought that I'm also doing good. And we just started at iHeart, the Black Information Network. Turns out there was no 24-hour-a-day audio news source for the Black community. And we found that last year. We sort of started developing it. And when COVID came, and I had to make a lot of cost reductions, we put it on the shelf. The executive we had running it, Tony Coles, great, young, up-and-coming executive, called me after the murder of George Floyd. And he said, Bob, I know we got it on the shelf. I know we've had to cut so deep. We've had to furlough people. We have to do unpaid vacations. The country needs it. You know what? We gulped hard. We talked to our board of directors. We all talked and said, you know what? You're right. We need to do that. And I'm probably as proud of the launch of the Black Information Network as I am anything because we're using business to perform an important function for society, something that's needed. And I think throughout my career, I think we've done that. And when I was at MTV, we did Live Aid. We did After My Time, Rock the Vote. We were involved in Amnesty International. Every charity we could find, we brought it up to make it a national event. And I think, and I know you have as well, you look at business as how can we use the leverage we have with business to also have a positive impact on society. So you talk about that intertwined journey. As you and I have had a lot of conversations over the years, not about just business. We have a unique position. How do we use it to do good? Bob, when I think about both of us were heavily shaped by this period of time, and I felt growing up in LA, the entertainment capital, I didn't feel the racial divide that you might have felt growing up in Mississippi or Alabama. And I was so shocked, Bob, by the Watts riots and this young African-American man that I met that he told me his father didn't have access to capital, he wouldn't have access to capital. In many ways, I feel when I see that we have more than 40% of all African-American owned businesses folding that a decade, two decades worth of progress has been lost in the last five to six months. So how has the Black Information Network done since you launched it? It's too early to really make any great proclamation other than the feedback we get and the response we get is tremendous. Although it's focused on the Black community, it's also focused on being, we think, the most objective network out there. And the change we did with the Black Information Network, and the one thing that's really different is when I was a COO of Time Warner, CNN reported to me, and we went through all the battles when Fox came up of what to do with CNN. And one thing I know is that if you make your money on ratings, clickbait headlines do work. Getting people all riled up does work. Making things sensationalist does work to get ratings. So when we started Black Information Network, knowing that, I said, I want these people running it, who are all of the community, to be freed from that need to slant, alter, push, excite. I want them to be able to think of the listener as being a very smart person. All they need is good information to make good decisions. And so we don't want to call people names. We don't want to slant it. We don't want to bias We just want complete information, even if it's boring. And so we went to 10 companies and got them to sign up with us as founding partners. And we all contributed to launching this. And we said, you know what? For three years, we're not going to worry about ratings. That's not your metric. We want you to build the most authentic, truthful, unbiased, complete news source you can 
that the black community can feel great that they've got the information they need. Nobody's forgotten about them. Nobody's forgotten about the how it affects them, explains it, pushes it. I find it so good that it's my number one go-to news source. And I turn on BIN every morning and listen to it because I know the news is going to be complete. They're not trying to sell me a point of view. There's no opinion. And I think that model of these incredible companies sharing this effort with us with BIN is a great gift to the black community. And it's also a gift to the executives that are running it. When I look at diversity in our company or anywhere, I think the biggest problem we have with diversity is when you hire for a job, you tend to look for experience. If you look for experience, you're basically going to get what was, not what could be. So with BIM, we hired everybody for potential. There's not one person on BIN and the management group that's ever done the job they are doing now. Never done it before. This is new to them. They were hired for their potential, not for experience. And I'll tell you, they're doing fantastic work. And I think back even to me is the great gifts I got were my great mentor, Steve Ross, let me have all these jobs I had no experience for. But he saw that I had a potential to do it. And he unlocked my career for me. And I think about diversity, we need to unlock the career for everybody who doesn't look like the past, but we know looks like the present and the future. And how do we get there? And BIM for us was just a great opportunity to unleash some of that. Bob, when we analyze, many companies have focused on their interns or their hiring with significant diversity. And then something happens. And as you look at it 10 years later, the promotions don't have the same diversity at mid-level that they had in entry. And one of the things I have felt very strongly is the importance of a mentor. So you mentioned Steve Ross. He was the one that introduced us 40 years ago. He was one of my closest friends, as you know. But when you talk about Steve, and I think about the entertainment industry, there were so many entrepreneurs. For me, Bob, it was a question of we could provide capital and my mission of democratizing capital. And when I look back, this was an industry that created content, needed to lay cable, took enormous amounts of capital. Talk a little bit about the early 1980s as the company was being transformed with the launching of cable networks and this little project you were building that was a gleam in Steve's eye and had enormous passion for the MTV networks, which there were many of them and your creativity came to work. I've been through a lot of businesses. I've been in theme parks, real estate, consumer real estate, et cetera, online at AOL. But I go move with all these jobs because the consumer is always the same. And I've always thought of myself as a sociologist. If I can understand the consumer, I can figure out what to do. And there's one guiding principle through all these businesses I've been in is that the consumer is in search of convenience. Save me time and I will use your product. There's about 10% of the public that will give up convenience for price. Everybody else is looking for convenience. And if you think about what was cable TV, it was really convenience. What we promised people was not, I'm gonna give you music or I'm gonna give you news or whatever. We promised we're gonna free you from that TV network programmer who's decided you only get cartoons Saturday morning. You only get news at 6.30 
that we're going to give you these 24-hour networks and you'll be able to click in and out of the 24-hour networks and put together a program that's right for you. So if you want music for two hours in the afternoon, you go to MTV. Your kids want to see kids stuff at six o'clock at night, you go to Nickelodeon. You want news at nine o'clock at night, you go to CNN. And this was before the days of on-demand. This was before the days actually of even home video. There were no pre-recorded tapes available out there. So that was the original construct of what cable was doing. I didn't need more content. I needed more convenience. I needed more control. Now, over time, as we see today, streaming services, on-demand, home video, diminish the value of that model. But at that moment, there was no model more powerful. The consumers who had grown up with TV understood it explicitly, and they were sort of 50 and under. Those were the people that bought cable TV. There were some people that said, I'm going to build networks for older people. And my view was, then I got to watch it because they don't understand that they didn't grow up with TV. And sure enough, we were right. They weren't successful, but we saw cable TV age, this population age, these people who've grown up with TV became 50, 60, 70. They took cable with them. They were creating this company called Warner Satellite Entertainment Corporation. They decided it's going to be specialized channels. What's specialized already? Radio. They have specialized formats. We need a radio programmer. I was at WNBC. I'd had this magnificent career in radio. I got hired and I was introduced to Steve and suddenly I'm like one of their guys and they're bringing me in meetings. I had nothing to do with MTV and nothing to do with the movie channel or cable. It was just, they were giving me an education. I don't know if you remember a guy named Spencer Harrison, who had been Bill Paley's business affairs guy, was Ted Ashley's partner when they had Ashley Famous, bought Warner Brothers for Steve when he moved into entertainment. It was really the business affairs guy. And by the way, his dad had been a Methodist minister. And Spencer, he was taking me on all these deals. And one day he looks at me and said, Bob, you do realize one day you could run this company. And I had always thought of myself as way down. I didn't think of my potential as being here. And I suddenly realized why Steve was spending so much time with me. And what I loved about Steve, he was very nimble. Before he told me he was going to merge with time, he said, I want you to be my successor. And I want to groom you for that. He said, okay, well, now I'm going to merge with time, but don't worry. We're going to keep Warner separate. And we're going to have an office of the president. You're going to be the office of the president. I go, okay. And then he goes, you know what? we're going to put our cable together. I want you to be the head of the cable company. I go, okay. And then he said, you know what? We're going to put it all together. I really want you with me. And I want you to run all new business and go develop all the new businesses for us. And I go, okay. And that was Steve. It's like everything was fluid. It wasn't like locked. And I love that. And I think that's an underappreciated strength that Steve had that most people don't think of. And I think that's a valuable lesson of business that in my view, now I come at it a little differently than Steve did because I was always focused on the consumer. And if I wanted to affect the consumer one way, there were many different ways to do it. And I was always open to moving it. And I think that the secret of MTV was we were hyper-focused on the consumer. We didn't care about the past. I saw an interview a few years ago with Mark Zuckerberg and somebody was asking about hiring people for experience. And you can see his reaction was experience. What's that? And we were at that point when we started MTV is we thought people with experience were loaded with a lot of baggage. We thought we were great because we didn't have any of that baggage. We could see clearly the mm-hmm. arrogance of youth, but there was a lot of truth in it as well. We were able to grow MTV, Nickelodeon, build MTV networks, take it public. We were the first profitable cable network at a time people said, 
basic cable can never make money. We made money. We had the highest revenue when I was there of any of the basic cable networks. And we were able to do all of that because we were flexible and we could go left and right. And initially we were going to be free to the cable operator. We realized there was no way we we're going to make money doing that, but we were nimble enough to change our model, not be too in love with our model, not be too rigid. That was the legacy of Steve Ross and something I still keep very ingrained in me. And I will tell you, some people have, find it very difficult to work for me because they go, Bob, it's like it's a moving target. And I go, right, because life's a moving target. And we either stay up with it or we get crushed by it. Bob, I think with Steve, hundreds of days, afternoons, evenings with his yellow pad as I sat down with him. I have his yellow <laughs> pad. When we did the AOL Time Warner merger, a woman said, I've saved all this for you. Remember his brown notebook? Yes. Remember the black notebook? I've got them all with the yellow <laughs> pads in there. So I've saved them for you because you should have them. I have them and they're one of my prized possessions. Underlining that word potential, Steve gave people responsibility very young, very early, and to see how they would do. And I would say those that wanted a rigid format would not succeed because of that. So you, in many ways, reflected who he was. So I'd like to take you back for a moment, Bob, and paint the picture. You and I grew up, there were three television stations, ABC, NBC, and CBS. We grew up, and there was really at the beginning six major movie content creation, Warner, Fox, Universal, MGM, Columbia, and Paramount. Later, Disney grew, later UA, but there were this, just these nine companies. And as I look at it today, every one of them now has ended up someplace else. Fox, the movie company is part of Disney. Universal is part of Comcast. Paramount and CBS have combined to make Viacom CBS. Warner has ended up in AT&T. Turner has ended up in AT&T. New Line has ended up at AT&T. Lorimar has ended up at AT&T. Telepictures has ended up at AT&T. Direct has ended up at AT&T. Comcast has ended up with TCI after a brief stop. But as I look at these handful of companies and the music, CBS has ended up in Sony. Columbia has ended up in Sony. So as I look at Sony, AT&T, Comcast, Disney, and Viacom, they've consolidated a large percentage of these companies. But they today, Bob, are kind of rounding errors compared to Apple, Amazon, Facebook, Google, and Microsoft. You became a financial entrepreneur, not just a manager, when you set up Pilot in 03. Most of them never made the transition to digital and streaming. They had the assets. In many ways, they gave up their assets to Netflix, who started out by mailing you a VHS tape and then a DVD. But at the end of the day, you launched all these different digital streaming internet companies and pilot that you built and sold. You're streaming your music today at iHeart, 
What is it that allowed you to move into what we might call the internet or streaming today? I don't think we ever told the story, but I was trying to pitch the idea of this music channel. This little thing we wanted to start called MTV. What was going on in the background is the record companies were saying, we should do a music channel. We're going to hire Lorne Michaels and these big producers. We're going to do stuff the way everybody does it. And we were saying, we're going to do it rinky-dink over here. We're going to do it a new way. We're going to come with a new cost structure. At the end, the secret of MTV was not we did music. The secret of MTV is we figured out how to do television on another cost basis and how to sell advertising, not through ad agencies in the traditional way through a buyer waiting for a Nielsen rating. Those were the two things that were the innovations of MTV from a business standpoint. But what was interesting is Steve gave it to the unknown kids, not to his big division. And I think that's what big companies do is they lose sight. It's not what you are here. It's what you will be. So they put their best executives and their biggest executives on things that make money today. And I even look at iHeart is we've had to take chances on stuff that seemed stupid at the time have turned out to be smart for us, building out a digital platform called iHeartRadio. We're now on 250 platforms, 2,000 devices. So, okay, you don't want to listen on AMFM, I could care less. Listen on the smart speaker, listen on your smart TV, listen on your video game machine. By the way, Bobby Kodak looked at the video game business a different way. Bobby was young enough to see the future. He didn't have a past. The past was not a burden to him. But he took all those crummy assets, Activision, and built it into this behemoth. But he also, you think about the risk he took. The CEOs that really don't miss things were always looking to the future and not burdened by what was or what's important or what the gang will think is a smart move. You know that very well is the great investment opportunities are not where everybody is. The great investment opportunities are the things that people have not seen yet or they've overlooked that still have value. The very first speech I gave in 69 was the best investor is a social scientist. Really understanding. And I remember when you went to AOL, you told me one click is a lifetime. If you make them click twice or three times, you're going to lose them. You've taken an old technology radio and now transforming it into the 21st century as you've tried to build a socially responsible, doing good as good business company in iHeart today. What does iHeart stand for? And how have you used 50 years of knowledge to build this company? It's a really good question, Mike. When I, I got the clear channel, I said, what is it we really are doing? And people thought, we're doing radio. We got a transmitter in a tower. I said, it's, not, it's nothing to do with what we're doing. That's no benefit to a consumer. What you boil down to is what we're really doing is keeping people company. We're your companion. Ryan Seacrest is my friend. I ride to work with Ryan Seacrest every day and I get to know Ryan and Ryan keeps me company. By the way, in times of disaster, I turn on the radio. I want to hear what's going on. Even if you're listening to music in your car at a certain point, you turn on the radio. Why'd you do that? We're social animals. We can't be away from other human beings that much. So I looked at it and said, well, what's the future? Well, the future is I should be able to get it anywhere I want to. Why am I limited to only when I can find an AM, FM radio? I got all these devices now. And the radio industry have ignored that. They said, well, we're radio. I go, no, we're not. We're companionship. 
We should be on your phone. We should be on your video game machine. We should be on your smart TV. We should be everywhere you could possibly find us. Anywhere you want, anywhere you expect us, we should appear because we're your friend. You need to be able to find us anytime, day or night. So we built the iHeartRadio platform to do that. We built the iHeartRadio name for all of our radio stations. So we built this, what we call it a master brand. Now I've unified all my radio stations. Now I can do a common event like the iHeartRadio Music Festival, the iHeartRadio Music Awards, the iHeartRadio Podcast Awards. We spotted podcast. Again, constantly watching the consumer. What's out there? Just like Netflix was TV on demand, podcast is radio on demand. Just companionship. By the way, when I was at Time Warner, I tried to get the folks at HBO to buy Netflix for about $300 million. They couldn't see it. And I couldn't buy it if there was no division that wanted to run it. Today, we're the number one podcaster. We and NPR are neck and neck. The last four months, we've won three of the four months. And the next largest podcasters, about half our size. We're the number one commercial podcaster by a mile. And we keep looking at these new opportunities to express ourselves and bond with the listener because we don't watch our assets. I'll go back to what you talk about people. We watch the consumer. And the consumer tells us where they're going and how they're moving. It's easier to sort of predict if they're this far along, it's probably going to wind up here than looking at my assets and say, what am I going to do with this tower? What am I going to do with this studio? During COVID, most of our personalities are doing their shows from home. Who would have dreamed of that? Do you know what my big capital cost is in real estate? Building a studio. How many studios do we really need now? And oh, by the way, we have all this equipment in the studios because that's the way you do radio. We're going to put it all in the cloud. Now my radio station, even if I got studios, doesn't need much equipment there because it's all in the cloud. So it's this idea of constantly watching the consumer, matching it with enabling technology. So if a new piece of technology comes along, how can we use it? If I can match this technology with what we know the consumer's looking for, we know we can create it. How do you see this environment affecting young people, their experience of this COVID-19, their experience of working at home, their experience where we're telling them to social distance? And as you know, if you didn't close the bars, the 20 and 30-year-olds would be in the bars and that they've calculated their probability of something terrible happening to them is low. How do you see it affecting them? And as a leader, how do you communicate that there will be an end to this? I know my parents were scarred by the Great Depression. I know we've got a group of people who were scarred when they were coming into the workplace in 08, 09. We have people who were scarred when they came into the workplace in 01, 02, can't find jobs. My son's at Vanderbilt and he's a senior. And last year, all of his friends who were seniors, every one of them had their job rescinded because of COVID. Every one of them and in the engineering school, bright, successful kids in the academic environment. I don't know exactly what it is, but I know it's scarring them somehow. But the scar is also going to open up an opportunity for them. And they're going to be pretty flexible, pretty nimble. The good thing for them is that the usual gating factor for young people is that they're much more open to technology and can see it, but the consumer adoption of it takes so long. What we've done during COVID, in many ways, we've taken 10 years of technology adoption and crammed it into three months. So now we've got a group of consumers who know technology that young people know. Out of that are gonna come ideas I can't conceive of, but they can. 
And I think out of that's going to come an enormous amount of creativity. Yes, they're craving other humans. And you're right. My young kids are both in college. They say, Dad, I'm not worried about COVID for me and my friends. The only thing I worry about is giving it to you. So when I'm back at college, I'm not living like I did at home. And I get it. I understand that. So I think from my standpoint, I think that we're going to see some incredible, this is going to be a period of extraordinary innovation. Because if you look at it, innovation usually comes out of these disruptions. I'm certain we're getting ready to have a slew of new ideas that you and I haven't thought of, but that we're going to be delighted to support and are going to be amazed by the people who do it. How have you adjusted yourself, Bob? I must tell you, in the beginning, when we thought if I touched something for two days, it was at the supermarket, I cleaned my house myself. I did all the work. I was isolated for three months. The first month, I did everything. Then I began to say, okay, well, okay, I don't have to be quite that careful. So I've slowly opened it up. The question is, have I opened it up too much? We have much more of a sense of what works and what doesn't work in treating people. I get the sense that if I do get it, that I've got a much better chance of survival than I would have in March. I'm also in New York now, and we've got very few fatalities. Hospitalizations are way down. We're past that peak. So I don't have this view of, I need to get in the hospital, and I'm banging on the door, and it's all crowded. So like everyone else, I'm reasonably paranoid, but I also began to understand that I also have a life. Yeah, I've got a grandchild too. She lives in Spain. I was supposed to see her in the spring. I was supposed to see her in the summer. I was supposed to see her in the fall. And I'm not going to see her for a while. And I miss that. I miss just hanging out with my friends. And I had a meeting yesterday with 11 of my executives, the first time I've seen many of them since March. And we all took a COVID test before we met. And we wore masks and we send the social distance. And I think that people are looking for ways to get together again. Because I think at the end of the day, humans are social animals. We suffer when we can't socialize. So Bob, in many ways, even though you and I might look different today, I was in my mid-30s, you were in your late 20s when we first met, but I still see that twinkle in your eye. I still see that social, responsible individual who believes that doing good is good business. And in many ways, even though we're not together, we are together in what we believe is important in life. And I I can't thank you enough for the journey and the interaction we've had over these uh, decades. And I look forward to seeing what you can accomplish in the next couple decades. I want you to know that you did change my life in ways that perhaps you didn't realize because it was part of something bigger going on, but you did. And I just want to say, thanks, Mike. You made a difference. Find more episodes on iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or MilkenInstitute.org slash podcast, where you'll also find the latest COVID-19 updates. Until next time, stay safe and healthy.